Well, for those of you who have enjoyed uh, the privilege of parenthood, uh, you would probably agree with me that one of the greatest joys one can have as a parent is uh, that moment that you realize that your child has complete faith in you, that your child trusts you implicitly, unquestioningly, that there is absolutely no doubt in their minds uh, that they can entrust themselves completely to you. Uh, This is something that I've increasingly been seeing in Ezra as he continues to develop, and it's been such an encouragement uh, to see this in him. Uh, Because, you see, Ezra has developed this habit of climbing onto things that he really shouldn't be climbing onto. And then proceeding to jump from those things and expecting us to catch him. But I say this is an encouragement to me because before he jumps, when I look into his eyes, uh, it's amazing to note that there is a complete absence of any fear, any hesitation. It's almost as though the thought that he might fall and bump his head against the furniture uh, never even enters into his mind. It's amazing as as a father to see that kind of trust in your child. And as I've prepared the sermon, I've uh, been thinking, I've been wondering, uh, what is this trust based on? Or or what has produced this trust in him? And and I came up with two uh, reasons, and and these reasons are going to be relevant to our text passage uh, in the book of Jude this morning. Uh, Firstly, I believe his complete trust in me is based on his past experience. Because you see, the first time that he took that jump, there was hesitation, and there was fear, and there was uncertainty, and it took him a while to actually work up the courage to jump. But as the weeks have gone on, every time he jumps, we catch him, and he jumps, and we catch him, and he jumps, and we catch him, and he's begun to see that he can trust us. He can trust that when he jumps, someone will be there to catch him. And so his confidence, his trust in us is based on past experience. But it's also based on his knowledge that we love him. It's based on his certainty that his parents are concerned about his well-being, that we want to protect him, we care about him, we love him. And so his trust is based on this, his past experience and his knowledge of our love for him. Now I raise these issues by way of introduction because uh, as we turn to our text passage in the book of Jude, we're going to be looking at Jude 24 and 25. As we turn to our text passage, we're going to to see that, that Jude raises exactly this issue. You're going to see that, uh, that, that two very important foundational truths of the Christian life is raised by Jude. The first issue is this issue of eternal security, the doctrine of eternal security. And this first issue uh, is, an, is an objective truth. It is, it is a doctrine that is based on the revealed Word of God. And so it is a doctrine that is sure. 
And this doctrine of eternal security refers to the fact that those who have been united to Christ by faith will never be separated from Him. It is this truth that those who have been born again, those who have been regenerated, those who have by the power of God's Spirit and by faith been adopted as children of God will forever be His children. To state it differently, it's the doctrine that those who have been saved will always be saved. That we cannot lose our salvation. That's this objective truth found in Scripture. But then there is this subjective issue, the assurance of our salvation. Now, the doctrine of eternal security is, is sure and steadfast based on uh, the word of a God who cannot lie and who does not change. But when it comes to the issue of assurance, that's much more subjective. And that's prone to change because our hearts are fickle and our hearts are sinful. And the reason I raise those, uh, those two issues about Ezra and his trust in us is because that's relevant to our assurance of salvation. Because often it is our experience that convinces us or leads us to believe that maybe we're not saved. Maybe there's a particular sin that you're constantly battling with and you're just being unable to get victory over it. And eventually you conclude, maybe I'm not saved at all. Maybe I'm not a converted man or woman. Surely if I was converted, this thing would not have such power over me. Maybe it's just a a lack of prayer or coldness in prayer, coldness in your heart towards God and the people of God and the law of God. And you begin to wonder if if this is my affections towards God, maybe uh, I do not belong to Him. And so this issue of our experience causing us to doubt the assurance of our salvation. But the other issue is this issue of the knowledge of our love or the knowledge of God's love for us. Because we're prone to doubt that as well. We're prone to doubt that God the Father truly loves us. And so our assurance is weak because we, we eventually get to the place where we believe that we've outsinned the mercy of God and He's cast us aside. These are two issues that are before us as we, as we turn to our text passage, Jude 24 to 25. Jude writes, Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority, before all time and now and forever. Amen. Well, as we examine this text, we are going to look at it using three points. Uh, The first point will be uh, God's power to keep. And the second point we'll be looking at is our hope of being kept. What is the basis of our assurance? And then lastly, we're going to look at our response. What is our response to be? to the doctrine of eternal security and the truth of the gospel. Well, as we look at the first point, I think the first thing we need to ask from the text is why does Jude feel the need 
to speak about God's power to preserve His people at this point. I mean, He's moving into this doxology, this word of praise. He's moving into worship of God. So why does He feel the need to mention the fact that God keeps us? Why does He introduce the doctrine of eternal security? Well, we need to remember the situation that this church was in, that Jude was writing to. There was a constant threat of apostasy. There was a constant threat of falling away. Because as you'll remember, these false teachers had infiltrated this church, and they were busy preaching their false doctrine. And they were misleading people. They were, they were twisting the grace of God into an excuse for sin. They were perverting the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you can imagine the fear that prevailed as they read what Jude was saying. What false teachers among us? Where are they? I haven't noticed them. And so this fear and this paranoia might have crept in. This past week I saw quite a clever prank that someone pulled. They went into a parking lot and they just wrote on a, on a little note, uh, they wrote, uh, I saw a massive spider in your car. I saw it running over the blanket on your back seat. And they took this note and they put it behind the windscreen uh, wiper. And I began to think, I wonder what that ride home must have looked like. As this guy's driving and he's wondering, where is this thing? Is it going to run over my leg, over my shoulder? Is it going to bite me? Uh, And so this suspicion, this fear, this paranoia, that's pretty much what was going on in this church that Jude was writing to. There's this hidden danger. Jude has spoken about the judgment that awaits those who follow the false teachers. He's spoken about the Israelites dying in the wilderness because of their sin. He's spoken about the angels being kept in chains of darkness in preparation for their judgment because of their sin. He's spoken about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the destruction of Cain and Balaam and Korah because of their sin. And maybe these believers have started to ask themselves, how can we stand against enemies like these? How can we know that we will not be led astray? How can we know that we will be able to escape the judgment that you've pronounced upon them? Notice Jude's response. Jude says, you can't. He says, you can't stand against these enemies. You can't keep yourselves from being led astray. You cannot, in your own strength, escape the judgment of God. You can't keep yourself saved. That is the implication of Jude's words when he speaks of God's ability to save. The implication is man's inability to keep themselves saved. And notice that he says that God is able to to do two things. Firstly, he's able to keep you from stumbling. So he states it negatively. He's able to keep us from falling away from the faith. But then he states it positively. He's also able to present us blameless before his presence with great joy. And this word that he uses, this word for keep, in the Greek it's the word phulasso, and it means to guard or to protect something. And it denotes the fact that that our salvation is guarded or protected by God. It it calls to mind the word of Jesus, the words of Jesus in John 10, 28, when he says of his sheep, I give unto them eternal life and they shall never die. 
perish. No one shall pluck them out of my hand. And so what we need to see from this is, is that we cannot, we cannot lose our salvation because it hasn't been entrusted to us. It's been entrusted to God. He keeps us from falling away. And when he speaks of stumbling, the word that he uses uh, is the word used of, of a sure-footed horse, a horse that is not lame, a horse that is known never to stumble, never to fall. And so Jude's implication is not only that God keeps us ultimately from falling, but that he even keeps us from stumbling. Stumbling precedes falling. And so God not only keeps us from falling, he keeps us walking in the faith. But now the question is raised, we know by experience uh, that we do fall. We do fall into sin. We do wander off from God. We do depart from his holy law. Uh, So in what sense then does God keep us from stumbling? In what sense does he keep us from falling? I found this amazing quote from William Secker who wrote, Though Christians be not kept altogether from falling, yet they are kept from falling altogether. That is the truth of eternal security. Not that, that God will keep us from sinning, or falling into sin, not that He will keep us sinlessly perfect until we die or Christ returns, but that He will ultimately keep us from perishing eternally. Though Christians be not kept altogether from falling, yet they are kept from falling altogether. When we turn to our confession the, the 1689 London Baptist Confession, it speaks of this truth in terms of the perseverance of the saints. And this is what our Baptist forebears wrote in chapter 17, paragraph 2 of the London Baptist Confession. They wrote, This perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father, upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ and our union with Him, the oath of God, the abiding of His Spirit, and the seed of God within us, and the nature of the covenant of grace. From all of these, from all which arises also the certainty and the infallibility of the perseverance of the saints. Here our Baptist forefathers uh, is raising something that we, that we desperately need to take to heart. They're saying, yes, only those who believe unto the end will be saved. That is true. That is what the Scriptures teach. Only those who persevere ultimately will be saved. And, and, and we can read that and we can easily, it can easily cause fear and dread and apprehension because we know our hearts we, know we are prone to wander off from God and we can say, there is no way that I can persevere in the faith. I know how easily I stray. But this is what our Baptist forefathers said. And praise be to God for this truth, that our perseverance in the faith depends not on our own free will. 
What does it depend upon? They say that it depends upon the immutability or the unchanging nature of the decree of election flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God. Do you notice what that's saying? That's saying it's not up to me to keep myself saved. It doesn't depend upon my perfect obedience to the law. It, de- it, it depends upon the unchanging love of God. He's electing love. He has chosen us from eternity past, and He will keep us to the end. That is the basis of our assurance. But they also say that it is based on the efficacy or, or the power, the effectiveness of the merit and the intercession of the Lord Jesus Christ and our union with Him. We're going we're gonna to zoom in on, on those two points that I've just mentioned in a moment. It's based on the oath or the promises of God. It's based on His Spirit's abiding in us. It's based on the nature of the covenant of grace, which by definition is not conditional upon our perfect obedience. Therefore, we can say that the assurance of our salvation must be based on the sure promises and the trustworthiness of the Word of God. We're going to get back to, to these scriptural foundations in a moment, but, but allow me to just encourage you with these words. Days will come when either the flesh or the devil will try to convince us that God has cast us off, that we have finally outsinned God's mercy, that we have finally breached the thresholds of His grace, and He has cast us aside like the worthless sinners that we are. But let me encourage you, dear brother, dear sister, do not let your hearts be troubled at thoughts like these. God will never disown His people that He has redeemed. God will never forsake His children for whose adoption He paid such a high price. God has not saved us and left us to keep ourselves saved. He has given us eternal life. This brings me to point number two, the gospel, the foundation of our assurance. Look at the first few words in verse 25. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. How is God our Savior? Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the gospel. This is the foundation of all of our assurance. I said we'll, we're going to get back to those two points from the 1689, the decree of God's election flowing from His unchangeable love and the truth of our union with Christ. Let's, let's just unpack that briefly because that is the gospel. That is the gospel. First of all, I want to tell you of my own struggle with this doctrine of eternal security because I was raised in a tradition where you could lose your salvation like this. Just commit that one sin. Just do this. Just stop praying for this long. And God will cast you aside eternally. And I struggled with this doctrine of eternal security because people would come to me with, with scriptures like we find in Philippians 1 verse 7 where Paul speaks of his confidence in the Philippians that, that God who has begun a good work in them will bring it to completion. I would see those scriptures and I, I'd simply respond with 
scriptures of my own that, that uh, seemed to teach that one can lose their salvation. But what I didn't realize is that, that my issue wasn't eternal security. It's not that I misunderstood the doctrine of eternal security. It's that I did not comprehend the gospel. It's that I did not comprehend the extent of God's love for His people. I did not understand the great story of our redemption, that God, motivated by His love for the elect, made a covenant with His Son, the Pactum Salutis. He sends His Son not in order to make salvation possible, but to actually accomplish salvation for the elect. Listen to the words of Paul in Romans 8. This is, this is the foundation of our assurance. Listen to what he says in Romans 8, 31 to 39. He says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is a truth that we need to rejoice in. Consider the fact that God has not left us to keep ourselves saved, but that He has chosen to save his people, and he's chosen to send his son. This great story of redemption that God foreseeing, you know, we, we sometimes think that, that God saves us begrudgingly. We, we sometimes think that God is a reluctant savior, as though when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he says, well, I guess I'll have to save this one, because he's believed, and I've, I've said that whoever believes, I will save and so we think that God is reluctant in saving us. But that's not the truth because, because God foreseeing our inability to save ourselves, our inability to keep ourselves, sends His Son to redeem us. Sends His Son to become a sacrifice for our sins. Now please explain to me how on earth can anyone believe that a God who has done that for His people will allow them to ultimately perish? Not the sovereign and omnipotent and all-wise and immutable God of the Bible. He upholds us by the omnipotence of His hand. We read this morning in Psalm 3 that salvation belongs to God. Do we truly believe that? Or do we believe that we have to somehow add to it? That we somehow need to do our own part to keep ourselves saved? No, we are kept 
by God. Yes, we, we can displease the Father. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. And, and for this, God will chastise us. But this in no way affects our relationship with Him. We have been adopted as His children. There are times when, when Ezra gets on my nerves. There are times that he annoys me or he disappoints me or he angers me. But that does not change my love for him. It doesn't mean that I will, I will cast him aside or disown him. I will not allow him to fall no matter how much he annoys me. If this is true of me as an earthly and sinful father like I am, why do we struggle to believe this about our Heavenly Father? Why do we struggle to believe that He's capable of such love? But Jude says He is able. He is able to keep us unto the very end. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. But secondly, our assurance is based on our union with Christ. Theologians speak of, of the mystical union, our mystical union with Christ. And, and if that word makes you uncomfortable, it, it simply means that it is a union that we cannot explain. It is a union that we cannot grasp. It is a spiritual union with Christ. And, and it's amazing for, to me how many people miss this in Paul's theology. Because the doctrine of our union with Christ is the foundation of all of Paul's doctrine. It's amazing to think that, that he uses the phrase either in Christ or in him, referring to Christ, 170 times in his letters. It's the foundation of all his other doctrine. It's interesting in 1 Corinthians 15 when, when Paul needs to defend the doctrine of the resurrection, when he needs to uh, assure the Corinthians of their future resurrection, he points back to the certainty of Christ's past resurrection. And he says, because you are in him, because you belong to him, know this, that you too will be raised from the dead. When he wants to stress the need for unity in the church, in the book of Ephesians, he uses the picture of Christ as the head of the church as the basis for that unity. You can name the doctrine, election, justification, adoption, sanctification, glorification. All these doctrines Paul bases on the reality of our union with Christ. How does this relate to the doctrine of eternal security? Well, because this union with Christ is indissoluble. It means it cannot be destroyed. Listen to what Martin Luther said. He was, he was uh, commenting on what Paul says about the union between uh, Christ and his church, where he says it's like, it's like the union between a husband and his wife. And Luther wrote about this. He said, who then can fully appreciate what this royal marriage means? Who can understand the riches of the glory of this grace? Here, this rich and divine bridegroom Christ marries this poor wicked harlot, redeems her from all evil, and adorns her with all his goodness. Her sins cannot now destroy her, since they are laid upon Christ and swallowed up by him. And she has that righteousness in Christ her husband, of which she may boast as if it were her own, and which she can confidently display alongside her sins in the face of death and hell, and say, if I have sinned, yet my Christ in whom I have believed has not sinned, and all his is mine, and all mine is his. 
as the bride in the Song of Solomon says, my beloved is mine and I am his. What Luther was saying is that in our union with Christ, Christ's righteousness is made ours. And and that's why he seems to be so amazed at this truth. Because wicked sinners that we are have been given the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when Paul speaks of God, uh, when Jude speaks of God, uh, of us being presented before God blameless, it is not a blamelessness produced by us. It is a blamelessness imputed to us, made ours, the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. What an amazing truth. Our union with Christ. The assurance of our salvation. But lastly, we want to talk about our response. How, how do we respond as Christians to truth like this? Notice how Jude ends his epistle. He says, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Having said all that he has said about this, this threat of, of these false teachers, and having said all that he has said uh, concerning God and what he has done to us, for us and his ability to keep us, notice that he ends his epistle with worship. That is how we need to respond to the great truths of the Christian faith. They should lead us to worship God. It is not enough for us simply to be orthodox. It's not enough for us to simply believe all the right doctrines. Because the great truths of our faith are too great. Their implications too staggering to leave us unmoved, unaffected, unchanged by them. It should lead us to worship. And that's exactly what Jude does. He speaks words about God that can be said about no one else. About His glory and His majesty and His eternal authority and dominion. I've always been amazed at the Apostle Paul writing the book of Romans. And, and if you step back and you look at the whole scope of the letter and where Paul goes with the letter, for 11 chapters, he's hammering home doctrine. He's hammering home the truth concerning our sinful natures, our, our sin, our judgment, our guilt before a holy God. He speaks about the gospel, justification by faith alone. He speaks about the, the, the role of sin and the law in our lives and the role of the Holy Spirit. He talks about, uh, about how to now understand uh, how Israel relates to the church because they've been, uh, Israel and the Gentiles have been made one body in Christ. And then he gets to chapter 11 and in chapter 12 he's going to get to the, the practical stuff and he, he really wants to, to apply this to their lives and, and give them practical instruction. But, but it's almost as though Paul says, I'm going to get to that, but first... We need to praise God for what He's done. It's almost as though He he can't move on to the practical stuff because because He's so excited. He's so moved by the truths of the gospel. And listen to what He writes at the end of chapter 11. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and how unscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen.
We cannot hear truth like this. We cannot hear the truth of the gospel and not be moved, not be led to worship. And, and so I want to say to you this morning, if, if you're hearing these truths and you're unaffected, if you're hearing these truths and your heart is just cold towards God, won't you cry out to God for mercy? Ask God, ask God, show me your glory. I, I don't see it. I don't see your greatness. Show me your greatness. Help me to understand the gospel. Help me to see the truth of it. Help me to see what it has cost you to save me. Because if we truly, if we truly get the sense, the full sense of the gospel, we cannot be unchanged. And it will lead to worship. I can still remember, uh, I think it was in my second year studying through BI, I had an assignment due on one of the attributes of God. I think it was his infinity. And I remember reading Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, and he was talking about the infinite nature of God. And I remember reading, I can't even remember what he was saying, but he was talking about the greatness of God. And I remember having to put down the book and just worship God for his greatness, for who he is. Just amazed at the greatness of the God of the Bible. Let us not be unmoved by the truth of the gospel. And so, in closing, I simply want to urge you, if, if you're sitting here this morning and you're a believer, let this be an encouragement to you. If you've truly been converted, if you've truly been united to Christ by faith, if you've truly been saved, you will always be saved. You will always be kept secure. And be convinced of this, the love of God the Father for you. Paul, there in Romans 8, spoke about the fact that God did not even spare His own Son in order to save us. How shall He not also with Him graciously give us all things? And so whatever it is that's driving you to the point of despair, whether it's sin or whether it's some situation at work, whether you're grieving the death of a loved one, let this be your consolation, the unchanging love of God and the indissoluble union with Christ. He has saved you and He will keep you to the end. But if you're an unbeliever and you're hearing these truths, won't you stop your rebellion? Why is it that you would would turn aside from a God who offers what the God of the Bible offers? Why would you turn away from this free offer of salvation and grace in the Lord Jesus Christ? He is a God who loves to save. He's not reluctant. He's not a reluctant Savior. He's not a begrudging Savior. He wants to save. And so whatever your sin might be, whatever it might be that you believe is just, uh, it's just insurmountable, it's just too great, God cannot possibly forgive me. There is salvation in Christ. He has not died in vain. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.
Father, we, we come to you knowing our fickle and our sinful hearts. We come to you this morning confessing uh, that we often stray and we often rebel against your law, against you. So often our affections towards you grow cold and, and sometimes this, uh, this drives us to believe that uh, maybe we're not converted. Maybe we've lost our salvation. Maybe you've cast us aside. But Lord, we praise you. We thank you for this precious truth that those that you have come to save, those whom you have redeemed are eternally yours. Nothing, nothing can separate us from your love in the Lord Jesus Christ. Won't you help us, our Lord, to, to be convinced of this truth? Won't you help us to understand this truth? Won't you help us to base the assurance of our salvation on your sure and trustworthy word? Won't you comfort us with these words of assurance, we pray. And as we move now to the table, I want to ask our Lord, won't you make the gospel real to us as we look at this grape juice and we, we look at this bread, these symbols of this great sacrifice that you have made on our behalf. Won't you move us to worship? Won't you help us to see all that you've done for us. We praise your name. Amen.